Hi, I'm Sean Murray, and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate, and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at the topic of our fragile peace process. How does peace now look 25 years on from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement? Has common ground been made by former enemies, or are we as polarised as ever? My next guest served under the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Depending on which side of the political divide you come from, the RUC were seen as the protectors of a community or an oppressive force against another. But before we speak to our next guest, let's get a quick overview on this week's topic. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh, South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development, and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is Sam Thompson. Sam is a former member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. He experienced the loss of a number of colleagues and friends and saw numerous killings and bombings during the conflict. Sam retired in 2008 and has ex expanded on his love of history and is now a lecturer. Sam, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Sean. So, Sam, you grew up not far from where we're sitting now, uh, a very different place from, from this side of the wall. Do you want to tell us a bit about your childhood? Yes, well, um, I came in this world, I was born in the Royal Victoria Hospital up the road. But the first house I was brought home to is Dundee Street, just on the other side of the Peace Line. So all four of my grandparents all lived within about 300 yards from here. Um, my grandfather would have grown up on 9th Street, which um, runs down into Conway Street. So I was very familiar with that lower Shankill area when I was young, even though um, my parents moved to Ballycillan. My grandparents continued to live down there, so I was basically brought up in between the two. And Sam, you joined the RUC. What motivated you to do that? And what was its reputation like when you joined it? Right, um, in terms of motivation, I joined it pretty much by default. I didn't really know what to do with my life. And I'm now at the stage where I'm retired and I still don't really know what to do with it. Um, what year uh, did you join and what age were you? I joined in 1979. And I was 18 and about four and a half months by the time I went in. Um, 
So it, it was basically the economy here was imploding. The place was rapidly deindustrializing, and it was one of the few things that had any job security. Now, in terms of um, reputation, there was none of the baggage in the unionist community regarding the RUC. Uh, and my first memory of them is actually quite a positive one. I went to Cliftonville Primary School, and it must have been either 1970 or 1971. Our school sports day was attacked by um, bigger kids from around the Bone area. And the teachers got us off with all the run, like they're coming over and chucking bricks and stuff at us, and feeling absolutely terrified. And the police arrived down in the school, and I remember feeling reassured and safe at the sight of the police uniform. Now, as I got older, um, 1970s was quite a brutal period, and up around Ballycillen, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but like the word in the school was, if you messed about with Tennant Street or you got arrested, you would get a hiding. And as this will sound absolutely weird to many of your many viewers, um, the idea that if you're arrested, you're going to get beaten up by the police. Nobody thought this was strange. But uh, on the unionist side of the house, that was very much a thing too. Um, but uh, things have to change. So you can either say, well, that's the way things are, or you can um, try and change them in a more positive way. And once you joined the RUC, I'm sure you, were, you were a member of the RUC for 28 years then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was there a certain period or, or a, a time where, and I'm sure there were many dark times, mm -hmm. was there something that stuck out in particular? Oh, well there were so many things, like particularly the first lot of years um, when I was in uniform. You remember like the severe incidents when people have been shot and things like that, and all these sort of bloody things, they tend to stick in your mind. The thing which travels with me the most, and I wasn't even there, was um, my best friend was killed during a hunger strike. And this is this, um, and this is why this sort of Republican celebration of it tends to stick in me a bit. There's a lot of people died during that didn't want to die. And um, he was blown up on the 7th of September, um, blown to pieces basically, only identifiable by fingerprints, just turned 20 years of age. And um, he had been transferred to um, Pomeroy, and that was his first day on duty. He was there for an hour and five minutes. And um, I still think about him and about that quite often. And then there's other people that know quite well as well. But, you know, you, you carry these things through your life. I think we're all scarred by what happened. And I suppose during your time in the RUC, were you ever, did you ever have the urge to join a paramilitary organisation uh, or were you ever pressurised to do that? Absolutely not. Uh, and even when I was growing up in Ballycillen, which where paramilitaries are very strong, I had absolutely no inclination of it. I can give you a story about how people did get into those sort of things. So about when I was 16, myself and a friend, we went, we'd heard that um, there's this bar in Shankill Road to serve you, weren't too fussy about what age you were. It's a brown bear facing Shankill Library. So we went in, ordered a couple of pints of harp, sitting there at a the table thinking we're great guys. And then somebody comes over and starts, you all right, fellas, starts shouting to you. And I realise what this all is, though, where are you from, all this sort of crack, who's your father and all this, trying to figure out whether you're Catholics or not. Like, I don't think anybody who's Catholic's going to be daft enough to go in there. And they say, well, um, 
what do you think this place fine fine it's all right um sure um we can swear you in tomorrow this is what he means swear us in he says i'm you're joining aren't you i says join him what he says the uvf and they're spitting the beer out so it was the first time I'd been in this place in my life and within 10 minutes walking in the door, somebody coming over trying to get me to join a UVF. Of course, I never went back near the place. But that would give you some idea how easy it was for people to get involved in that sort of thing. And just on that, uh, Sam, we're, we're all shaped by our lived experiences. 100%. And I understand you served in Springfield Road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Barracks, as we had called it, Springfield Road Police Station. Yeah. Uh, that to me, as a child growing up, was a place, you know, you heard stories of family members being tortured, even friends of mine yeah. that were in there were, were, were beaten. And to me, as, as, a, as a child growing up, the RUC were the enemy. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you had different lived experiences. You were inside there, looking out. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, it's just, um, yeah, it's 1983, and I arrived up in there not too long after the hunger strike, and the place had a very forbidden appearance. It didn't have the blast wall around it then, it just had this wire outside. Um, and the reason it didn't have a blast wall was they put a bomb out there that would rack hundreds of houses around it. Because it was a rare place, you were right in the middle of people. And the yard of it had a big um, corrugated tin fence and there was holes in it from where somebody had chucked a hand grenade over. And on a quiet evening, you could be standing out there in the front yard and you could hear the televisions of people in Violet Street who, in their living rooms, were seriously about six or seven feet from the front yard. So, like, the noise that they must have had from all the police and army vehicles, and it was primarily an army post. Like, the RUC were down in um, one corner of it. Um and the army occupied about 80% of the building. So you had like army pigs and stuff like that parked about inside it. The army did the security and then now and again it was overrun by feral cats and you would get these squatties running about drowning cats in the toilets and stuff. Like it was unreal. But in the inquiry office you had like these um, bulletproof shutters over the windows. There was no natural light. And then behind it, you had all these old newspapers must have been stuffed to keep the draft out. One day I pulled them out, like and they were dated from 1972 and stuff like that. Um, as a working environment, uh, it was horrible. It was cramped. The facilities, you know, were grim. It was dangerous. It was noisy. But probably um, the best bunch of people I've ever worked with there. We, we, we chatted earlier, you had mentioned, and I was amazed at the... Uh, at the knowledge you had of RUC men and British yeah, Army personnel yeah. that were killed just yeah. around Springfield Road. Do you want, do you yeah. want to tell us? Well, well for a start, um, a George Cross was one in the inquiry office in 1972 when a paratrooper threw himself in a bomb which had been dumped in there. Um, shortly before I arrived, there was a soldier killed at the Cavendish Street entrance by an RPG-7, a guy I worked with. He was the first one down to attend to him and the war head of the RPGs apparently went through the wall of Sanger and lodged inside him. Um, again, the year before, three soldiers had been shot dead by an M60 machine gun around the corner in um, Aris Street. 1979, there was a RUC officer shot dead as they reversed 
the Land Rover out the front gate, and I think somebody had counted it up that there must have been about more than 20 members of security forces killed within about 30 yards of the front gates of the place. And uh, along the front of the building was like riddled with bullet holes where cars used to drive up and down and spray the place. Sam, you also served in Tyrone. Are there any, was it very different serving along the border and are there any particular stories or reminiscences that you have from that time? Yeah, well, rural areas are, are very different from urban ones. Um, in Tyrone, as a sergeant in the mobile support unit, so though we backed up the local police in Dungannon, we also could be all over the place. Like we went up to Belfast, up at Ainsworth Avenue, the time the UVF guy blew himself up. I'm a predator. But Dungannon changed me. Um, at one week, um, whereas within about 25 feet of three bombs inside a week, none of which went off properly. I remember thinking, I can't do this anymore. I need to get out of this. Because it wasn't too long after two friends that Colleen McMurray used to work with Norma. She had been killed in Uri. And another guy that probably nobody's ever heard of, a guy called Billy Evans, he ironically was killed by the army. Out in the foot patrol up near New Barnsley and an army Land Rover ran over and killed him. I remember speaking to him a few months before saying, get out of there. Um, I don't believe in much, but I believe in the law of averages. And if you push your luck too long, sooner or later, something's going to happen to you. So I, I think the deaths of those two were preying on my mind. And I thought I need to get a job in headquarters or something, you know, because I'd gone through all these years of sort of near misses and something happening to somebody changed the shift with me and seeing things happen to other people and I thought it's only a matter of time before it happens to me. So um, applied for job and training and got that. And we crossed our own paths, me and yourself, through uh, a, a, a reconciliation, yeah. an informal, let's yes. say, reconciliation programme. Yeah. How has it been for you on that kind of journey in reconciliation? Um, it hasn't made a profound difference. You know, um, I think as you get older, you start to reflect on life. And there's an old saying, if you think the same at 40 as you did in 20, you've wasted 20 years. And I, and I started this interview by saying I basically come from a couple hundred yards away. And the thought occurred to me one day, the idea that someone should be an eternal enemy because they happen to be born 200 yards away from you or born on the other side of a street from is absolutely absurd. It's absurd. But that's the situation that we find ourselves in here. So I thought of that, and again, occasionally you see these little um, inspirational quotes, which may or may not be true. There, there's one supposed to be from Martin Luther King, said that um, hating someone is like um, drinking poison and hoping they'll die. I could hate Michelle all I want. You're not, probably not even going to know about it. It's not going to affect your life, but it'll affect mine. And um, is it going to make me any happier? No. Will it bring anyone back? No. Is it going to make the future any better for people that are children now or unborn? No. So some people that's their way to get through life, is carrying grudges and resentments and hate. I just think it doesn't do any good, and, I, and it wasn't making me feel any better. You know, um, I, by and large, don't suffer from PTSD or anything like that anymore, and I think this has helped because, in my mind, the war is over. There's other people 
can't accept that it's over for many, many reasons, some entirely legitimate, they've suffered a lot worse than I have. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, it's the right thing to do. It's not going to change the world, but I think it's up to each and every individual to do their own little bit. I agree with you, Sam. I think hate is a very negative emotion and very mm -hmm. wasteful. And, you know, we all we all have to move on. So where do you stand on the reunification question? Have you thought about our future politically? I am, um, these days, I'm pretty agnostic on it. Um, I was always, I suppose, a small U unionist. I wasn't a diehard, like I agreed with a statement I heard quite early in my time in the police, where somebody says to me, um, I'm not too bothered about a United Ireland. What I am bothered about is somebody trying to bomb me into it. Um, any sort of affection I had for the union died on the morning of the Brexit referendum. Not to me as a watershed moment. Because um, that to me showed it doesn't matter what we think here. You know, it's what England wants, really. Uh, I know people say it's a UK-wide referendum, but there's no way that Scotland and Northern Ireland should have been forced out against this will. Uh, Scotland in particular is like a distinct country and, uh, and all the rest of it. And I also just think it's incredibly stupid. I think that um, the UK basically that they decided to commit suicide. And I'm convinced of that. I think that historians look back, that is the day when the Union was fatally wounded and it was a self-inflicted wound. And on that, what would you like to see from Republicans to go that extra bit that would maybe convince you uh, that reunification uh, would be I, an option? I think the... I see a bit of schizophrenia from Republicanism. On the one hand, there's this outreach for want peace, but on the other, there's a sort of like constant propaganda war which is still being waged and quite a bit of hostility continually refighting the troubles. And at some stage, this is going to have to stop. You know, um, unionists who had relations in the police or UDR aren't going to look upon their relatives as evil child killers any more than relatives the IRA men are going to regard their relatives in that. And all it's doing is winding people up and giving people um, an excuse not to talk to them. Um, I, I think as a society, and I'm not just pointing the finger at Republicans here, it's all over. We need to stop absolutely wallowing in the past. We're not remembering it, we're wallowing in it. You know, I did an article once that Japan recovered from two atom bombs quicker than Northern Ireland's recovered from the Troubles. 15 years after Hiroshima, they were hosting the Olympics and are one of the best economies in the world because they just decided that we're not going to talk about all this. We're just going to move on and make a better country. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Gildenew, alongside historian and former RUC man, Sam Thompson. All right. So... Close to where you were born and brought up, yeah. Sam, there's a, a massive community festival yeah. called Phelan Bubble, and that came out of a commemorating the or remembering internment, yeah. and and then turn it became a community yeah. festival as a more positive way of remembering the past. Um, so you know, do you think that 
something like that could be replicated. I know it's it's it it looks at and speaks to people from all political persuasions and none, and it's just such an inclusive festival. Do you know, well, have uh, you attended any uh, events? Or? Oh, I have indeed. I've attended events in the past, uh, and I think it's a very positive thing because, as um, I said, I arrived in Springfield Road 40 years ago, and um, I remember those annual internment things, and it was sort of like that film, The Purge. You know, um, the civilians sort of took it upon the night anything goes from both them and the police. Like there was batting rounds fired in and, and they could be written off in a form, which any other time of the year would be, what did you do that for? But those internment nights, it was like ritualistic rioting. And you had people hurt and you had people occasionally getting killed. So <laughs> I think that's a, mar I'll give credit where it's due, that's marvellous credit primarily to Sinn Féin for turning that round, to have a very destructive time into something more positive. Um, some of the events are more cross-community than others, but that's okay. You know, if I don't want to go to something, I won't. <laughs> you, you know, it's like um, the annual Bobby Sands march, you know, in May or whatever. It doesn't bother me because I don't have to go anywhere near it. So yeah, that's good, and I would like to see that being extended across the Shankill and East Belfast, and maybe have a whole summer of cultural events. But you know, I think those events are worthwhile because um, you've now got, you know, unionists going to them, and no um, one of the commentators is going along, and it's letting also people in West Belfast speak directly to people that they would normally speak to. So I think it's all generally quite positive. I know there's a bit of controversy about one or two things, but by and large, I approve of it. This week, we take a look at the history of partition. How was Ireland divided? And what has that meant for the population of the North over this last 100 years? The official partitioning of Ireland took place in May 1921 via an act passed by the British Parliament. The original intention was for both regions to remain within the United Kingdom, but the Irish War of Independence led to the South seceding from the UK in 1922. Attempts at legislating the Government of Ireland Act first began in 1886. The Government of Ireland Act of 1920 was the fourth try at establishing home rule in Ireland, that is, affording the country a certain amount of freedom to self-govern while retaining its position as part of the United Kingdom. Up to that point, Ireland had been ruled by the UK Parliament via their administration at Dublin Castle, ever since the Irish Parliament was abolished through the Acts of Union 1800. After many attempts at negotiating the division of the nine northerly counties of Ulster from the 23 remaining counties that comprise Munster, Leinster and Connacht, only six counties within Ulster were included in the fourth Irish Home Rule Bill of 1920. This was to ensure a Protestant majority for many years to come. After the third Home Rule Bill was passed in 1912, Ulster Unionists had founded a paramilitary force named the Ulster Volunteer Force, with the intention of resisting the bill's implementation by violent means. Many British Army officers stationed in Ireland resigned, and with Nationalists having established their own military army in response, with both sides importing arms, a civil war seemed imminent. Eventually, a trial period of partition was also included in the third version of the Irish Home Rule Bill to appease Unionists. But when World War I broke out in 1914, 
the bill was suspended. In an attempt to take advantage of Britain's distraction with the war, an insurrection was launched by Irish revolutionaries on Easter 1916. Following this rebellion, more attempts were made to reach a compromise, such as the 1917-18 Irish Convention in Dublin, with little success. In 1919, the Irish War of Independence officially began. The Government of Ireland Act was enacted in 1920 and the island was partitioned the following year. Home rule never came into effect in the South. Instead, the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, which ended the war in Ireland, allowed the self-governing Irish Free State to be created. And thus, the partitioning of Ireland became official. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Sam Thompson, and our resident co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.